As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. It's Thursday, and today we ask, will Roman Abramovich take his time deciding on Chelsea manager Frank Lampard's future? Elsewhere, West Ham aim for the next level under David Moyes. Is Paul Pogba on his way to a defining season for Manchester United? And Phil Neville swapped St. George's Park for South Beach, but was he a success as England women's boss? To help me through it all, Jonathan Northcroft, Gregor Robertson, and Tom Roddy. How are you doing, guys? Thank you. How are you? Oh, very well. Good, good. Great to speak to you. Not a great feeling for Frank Lampard at the moment, though, especially if you're a Chelsea fan. So let's start with them. We're going to get through a raft of topics today on the game podcast and no time to waste. Two wins in eight Premier League games for Chelsea. Listen, I promised we would discuss the game at the King Power Stadium. It finished Leicester 2, Chelsea nil, but the Londoners were never really in it and fans of the club were calling for the head of Frank Lampard afterwards, appalled by the performance. He certainly is, I think, on Roman Abramovich's chopping board at the moment. The Chelsea owner might not act as swiftly, given Lampard's status as a club legend, though. Johnny, before we discuss his future, what did you make of the game? I mean, the starting point would be how good Leicester were. That could be, you know, and I'm talking about all Premier League performances. It's one of the performances of the season. Um, the just the details of the football were so good. The 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 the, the off the ball movement, the the ideas they had from set pieces. Uh, every time a player sort of got the ball, it was a it was a quick touch, and it, they had a clear idea of where everyone else was. You know, they played so well without Jamie Vardy fighting. That that eternal question about Leicester, what they do when Vardy's not there. Well, I mean, last few games they've been sensational, even though he's been off form. And, and from a, a, I thought it was a very complete performance from a sort of coaching point of view. It had everything you'd want. It had the team's identity stamped, stamped all over it. Um, it was also a big performance at a big moment. It was a, it was a game where you know they could go top of the league, and the question about that Leicester team has been you know can they take that next step? Blah blah blah. They underperformed when they had the chance at Anfield early in the season. And they answered that. It, it, it was fabulous. Um, the most striking thing was against a big side. They scored a couple of goals and just kept them at arm's length. They were like Mayweather or something, just just staying out of reach. And Chelsea couldn't land a blow on them. And, and you don't often see a big side just being kind of toyed with in, in that way. Um, Leicester are getting better. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's good news for the title race because they're a breath of fresh air in there. Ominous for Chelsea, not just in terms of, uh, of them and, and their performances at the moment, but their chances of a place in the top four as well. Because it looks at the moment like Leicester asserts for that. Gregor, I wanted to talk about Chelsea's team selection, though. I was very surprised Frank Lampard started, especially Kai Havertz, in a game of this magnitude. You know, I expect the manager to pick the players he, he trusts most. And that really wouldn't have been one of the players I would have chosen. Timo Werner on the bench, OK, he's been misfiring. Tammy Abraham started instead. But also their approach, Gregor, because... They, they seemed, and it might be because of the way that Leicester played, but they seemed off it just in terms of application. And that's rare to see from a big side. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that Lampard keeps coming out now and he's, he's actually starting to ring the same tune. He's saying the basics, the basics of the game are missing. And, you know, the more you say that, the more you start to wonder how that reflects upon him. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there are some, you can look at some individuals and as you say, are these players... A on form and are the players you can really trust at the moment when there's a bit of pressure. I'd, personally, I'd throw Hudson Odoi into that. I think he's, you know, he's, he's he's a brilliant impact player and he's he's got wonderful talent. But to have him 
in a start in your starting lineup at, at this moment in time. I'm not so sure about that choice either. Um, Kovacic was poor, but then the the other thing, James Reese James, he's kind of you know he, he's been brilliant going forward, but defensively he's not solid, he's not reliable, and Rudiger again you can throw into that too. So there are some some sort of question marks over individuals, but the bigger question mark is the kind of their defensive structures and the amount of space and time that teams are, are afforded and the way they can cut through the middle of them almost at will a lot of the time. Um, and that, you have to say, that reflects poorly on Lampard. So when you're saying, you know, I'm just trying to put myself in a position where when I was playing, if you were, if you were on a team and you're thinking, I can't get close to them here. And it, sometimes it is... Is there a buy-in? Is there a complete buy-in from the players into the way they're being sent out and the sort of the tactical sort of overview from Lampard? Are the players really buying into that? Are they seeing that this is the best way for them to to win the game? I think there is an element of that, and some, as I say, there is an element of just individuals really not playing at their very best, or perhaps not being not being good enough. So you know, I think the more Lampard says that, I think you, the more it kind of reflects poorly on him, actually. Tom, do you think Lampard's now destined for the chop? We know what it's like to be in the the hot seat at Chelsea. Managers don't get too much time to prove their worth. And from what we've seen since Lampard took over, do you think Roman Abramovich would be keen to extend his his contract? I think most managers who join Chelsea are destined for the chop at some point. But um, I think most managers are. But I, I don't think I don't think so. Right now, it's it's not a good position at all. But I think we've seen this. It's such a strange season, and um, we've spoken on on here about Arteta going, about Oli going, and um, Solskjaer is now top of the top of the table, and Arteta's Arsenal are improving under under the kids essentially. And there seems to be so much kind of flux this season, and I don't think it looks. It doesn't look good. Um, at Chelsea because of the way in which it's dropped off a cliff. But the middle of December, they were the ones who were top of the table. And um, I think you see the, the the change that happened in the summer, the amount of players that came in. And it takes a while to, to transition that. I think the one thing Gregor was saying that also kind of rings true is the the Lampard's kind of admitted recently that the benchmark has changed at Chelsea and there's this suggestion that the top four would be okay this year, which which surprises me a little bit. I think you'd still be aiming a little bit higher. Um, but I think as well, you know, you've got they've got Luton this weekend, they've got Wolves and Burnley next week. They're three very winnable games. You'd expect them to win those games and, and it's possible three wins in a row and you go into February on on a bit more of a high and getting momentum. And I think it can still turn around that quickly at Chelsea as well. Uh, I do feel it was a little bit inevitable, just the sheer number of young players that came through Chelsea's team uh, last year. And, and look, you know, they've got big reputations, you know, the likes of Mason Mount, we've mentioned Reese James already, and we almost forget that you go back 18 months and they were playing for, for Wigan and, and, and Derby County and they're still players learning their trade who have sort of big roles in that Chelsea team at the moment. And they're not the only ones, you know, you still talk about the likes of Tammy Abraham, Callum hudson Adoy. you know, these are people still trying to prove themselves really on the top level and they're doing it at a top club. So, so in many ways, I, I, I'm inclined to give Frank Lampard just a little bit more time. But I wonder if in the summer there'll be a big decision to make. And, and if that, Johnny, that big decision has to come from Robin Abramovich, from what you know of him, do you think there will be more leeway for Frank Lampard, you know, given it's a man who made 649 Chelsea appearances and won 11 major trophies as a player at the club? I think the leeway has sort of been used up. I think I think he, if he'd been Andre Villas Boas, let's say he, he may have gone already. And listen, I think it's right he gets that leeway. He's not only that club legend; he, he's a promising manager. We saw we've seen that in flashes. We saw that at Derby. But I, I've got a feeling that goodwill is probably uh, running short now from Abramovich. And I tell you what, it's always a recipe for. Disaster, if you like, for a manager when the owner invests big. When you go, when the owner spends big in a in a in a transfer summer, and has particular players that they 
they really want to recruit. So, you know, Abramovich was a big fan of Kai Havertz, for example, wanted him at the club. Um, Petr Cech is involved in the recruitment process, very close to Abramovich, um, has helped bring in some of those players, as has Marina Gravinskaya. So Abramovich and his team have spent and the manager's expected to deliver. And I think that's that counts as much against Frank or will count as much against Frank in, in, in Abramovich's mind as the straightforward facts of the league position. I think when an owner sees that the kind of the hardware that they've provided isn't being used the way they want, it's very, very difficult for that coach to survive. So I, I think his reputation won't save him. I think it'll have to be results and it'll have to be finishing in the top four. And I fear for him because it looks a long way off at the moment. It looks a difficult scenario. And um, it's doable, as Tom said, there's three winnable games. You know, it's a strange season. Uh, we could have said the same things about Arteta a month ago. But my gut instinct is I'm not going to finish in that top four. There's too many issues. They're too far away from having an identity and a settled team that you could see putting a run together towards the end of the season to get into the top four. There's no doubt, too, that the, the contrast and all those things you're saying with Leicester just kind of makes it more glaring. You know, Leicester have got sensible structures. The the recruitment is just, you know, every year it's it's incredible. Fofana again is outstanding. Justin, you know, you know, you look at Justin and Chilwell now and you think, Justin could be playing left back for England soon. Absolutely. Um you know, there's a they, they they're kind of gradual progress and Brendan Rogers will be two years in the role next month and you can see the steady progression. And yeah, He's he's one of the best managers in the country, and it's kind of you look at you look at the the kind of the two clubs as a whole, and there's no question which ones run better. And as you say, Johnny, that's true. When a man, when when someone's kind of thrown two hundred million pounds at a team, and again, you, we've I know we've said this already, but you look how kind of imbalanced that was when they're still still chopping and changing about who to play alongside Silva, and even Silva was an afterthought afterthought at the back. How they could have spent all that money. And not signed a, a top class centre half or even a holding midfielder. You know, can't I know Canty's out, but that's the two that's the two areas of the pitch. They need they need a spine. They, they signed a goalkeeper, uh, they signed someone who they thought was going to be a top class centre forward in Werner, and I'm sure he you know he is a top class player and I'm sure he'll come good. But those are two glaring holes in Chelsea's team, and they spent two hundred million pounds and didn't come close to, to addressing them. I wonder if they will with the likes of Declan Rice uh, come the summer as well. But uh, Tom, while we're on it, other other candidates for the job, if Roman Abramovich does decide uh, to change things around, are the club in contact with others? And um, who are those names? Well, there's there's kind of talk of um, of this 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 the suggestion of of Germany and German coaches that would work, and which. Uh, I mean, you you can kind of see it in Czech speaks fluent German, so the the, the hierarchy behind um, behind the club suits that. Um, and you've got, uh, I think, the idea again, as Johnny said about Abramovich and bringing in those German players who are seen as the future. I mean, Kai Havertz was was in Germany. Kai Havertz is seen as one in. A century player. That's how they they kind of describe him. And Werner is the Werner is the. I think the one surprise at Leipzig, funnily enough, with Werner was was that he started so well at Chelsea in those first few games. They thought it'd take a little bit more time to settle in. Um, and he's quite an emotional player as well. So it's. I think if if the if Chelsea see the future around Havertz and Werner, then the idea of a German manager. Suits and of course we've all seen the brilliant work that Nagelsmann has done over the years. Um, but I must admit, I mean, watching the other night, I thought how much Brendan <laughs> Brendan Rodgers would, how much he deserves a job like that. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave Leicester, but how much he deserves an opportunity at a club like that and what his coaching style could do. Um, I found it interesting this week to look back to 2012 when Brendan Rodgers was at Swansea and he said that I wouldn't take uh, the Chelsea job because it would destroy my career at the moment. Um, 
and you look at Lampard's situation at the moment, if he gets sacked, what, you know, maybe that is, is the case. It could well be, and I'm sure we'll be discussing Frank Lampard and Chelsea in the coming weeks to see if they can turn things around and fight their way up the table. Um, let's talk now about another manager who's fought back from a difficult uh, situation. He's finally returning, I think, David Moyes, uh, to being the manager many believed he, he always was, despite the difficult times he's had since going to Manchester United. West Ham are having a resurgence. They beat West Brom 2-1. They move now just two points outside the top four 32 points after 19 games is their highest points tally halfway through a Premier League season. And the manager believes his club could be and should be competing at the top end of the Premier League, although he's saying he wants to take it step by step. Tom, where do you think Moyes can take West Ham as a club? I think he, he has spoken about Europe recently. And at the, at the moment, it, that feels a little a little a little too much of a stretch and, and not nothing to do with particularly West Ham's um, kind of potential. But I, I just think it's, it's so, it's so populated at the top. You think about how well Southampton are doing at the moment um, and, and clubs like that who are overachieving as well. It's, it, it's going to be tricky to get into those European places. I just, I've just been so impressed by the way in which he has so quickly built uh, a culture uh, at West Ham. And um, um, Johnny was talking about the kind of identity earlier at, at Leicester that you see. You, you, you feel like you're seeing that at West Ham under Moyes as well now. Um, I mean, it's been and it's felt a long, this, this feels like, like the, the, the recovery of his career. And it's been a long time coming from that Man United period. But the way in which he's sort of transformed them, uh, transformed Antonio to become, to be a striker, he's a, he's a good coach and a level-headed coach and a, and a good man-manager as well. Um, I think the talk of Europe is 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 a little bit of a stretch at the moment but they're just when you watch them they're just so difficult to beat and that that is the foundation to start from Johnny, they're in the market for a new striker at the moment west ham um investment uh, is probably a worry word for west ham united fans <laughs> because it, it isn't as consistent let's call it that as a club like leicester um and a lot of the time they don't spend big money so and I, I think at the moment in the Premier League you'd say if you want to be in Europe that's something you might have to do um, do you think investment is what holds West Ham United back in many ways I do I mean it's not just like scale of investment it's actually the way investment has gone over the last few years I mean the They've been an odd club under the, 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 the sort of ownership where they go through periods of not spending and, and selling decent players. And then suddenly they splurge 100 or 150 million on a, a bunch of guys that, that, that seem to have been you know, bought from some kind of fantasy football catalogue. But maybe not, not, maybe not the A catalogue, the B catalogue, you know, if you know what I mean. Um, and... You know, they were in the summer. They were selling Diangano behind Moise's back, as it were. They were um, saying there was there was there was no cash around. Now um, I'm led to believe there is a willingness to to try and spend again. And it's you know what Moise's job is to make sure that um, they don't sort of just go into this boom and bust thing, and that that money is used carefully and and wisely. And you know, the striking position is a big one for them. They've, they've, they've offloaded Haller to, to Ajax because he's just, you know, for all his qualities, wasn't going to really be a consistent Premier League scorer. Antonio has done such an incredible job, but Antonio's in his 30s. He's such a team guy. He runs his socks off. He can't carry that workload all the time. So they need someone else. Um, and striker's the hardest position to find. But the, the way they're playing at the moment, if you can imagine a striker in there, um, where could they go? The, the, the funny thing is, I think when David talks about um, moving to the next level, he's talking about becoming Everton. He's talking, that's that all along, that's a blueprint. He's talking about not jumping to the top four straight away, but building towards it. And the, I, I guess there's a lot that's similar about the Everton team he built. But with the Everton team he built, he for years didn't have a striker. That was the one thing that, that kind of held them back and he had to find solutions like Fellaini or Cahill and so on. And 
it, it, watching West Ham, there's so many echoes of, of, of what happened at Everton, including the, 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 the sort of striking position one. Um, I don't know, maybe they just need someone to come through the youth team because, as I say, I, I can't see them spending £80 million on a striker and, and you know, golden strikers aren't, aren't around. But my goodness, they're so solid and structured and motivated that if they just had that extra player, um, I think they would be capable like like a Raul Jimenez with Wolves, you know, the, think of them like Wolves. Put Raul Jimenez back in the Wolves team. They're a different kettle of fish. Take him out, and they struggle. And I think I think a striker could could put West Ham that extra level in the same way. I think we need to give Moyes credit though for the recruitment he has done. Totally, and the, and he kind of rested control of it as well because that was the problem. It was you know Pellegrini had a kind of partnership with director of football, and that was a disaster. And since he's come in, Jared Bowen, brilliant. Uh, Kufal superb Suchek brilliant um, Darren Randolph's a good, goal, good goalkeeper Craig Dawson's been a brilliant brilliant uh, sign from Watford in recent weeks since he's got into the team you know Ben Rama so he's kind of there's a couple that have got the although it's in a different league now and that you have to spend 20, 20 odd million for a, a gem in the in the Football League, as they used to call him when he was signing Tim Cahill and stuff, you know, he's still willing to do that. Ben Rama, uh, Jared Bowen, two players who certainly, if you ask anyone who followed the championship, you would be certain. Uh, you know, Ben Rama's not done what uh, Bowen has yet, but I'm sure he will be a, a really good Premier League player for them. Um, so, yeah, the striker is the kind of the last piece in the puzzle at the moment because, you know, he's also eased out Mark Noble and they look really solid. Declan Rice and uh, Suchek in midfield there, um, and Antonio's kind of injury record is the is the worry, especially as after Haller's gone. So they have no backup really, um, and his kind of struggles with with hamstring uh, injuries I mean they do need a striker, and I'm sure they will sign one this month. But uh, so far, Moyes isn't really hit a bum note in that regard. Yeah, I mean, Greg, Greg, you're right to point out that recruiting, and, and again, you, the echoes of Everton would be, you know, this is a guy that got John Stones for two million, Cahill for two million, Arteta for two million. I think if if West Ham are are able to entrust the process to to Moyes, they'll be all right. It's, it's whether the outside influences come back in. Um, Su- Suchek to me is one of the best bits of recruitment in the Premier League in the last couple of years and a really interesting bit of recruitment and what what it makes me think of is uh, Virgil van Dijk and I'm sorry I'm not comparing them as players but (laughs) you think of Virgil van Dijk coming from Celtic to Southampton you know I I spoke to a guy called um, Salvador Carmona about this he runs Drib Lab which is a data scouting company and he pointed out that if you're looking for value go to a league where there are big clubs where the players have to play under pressure, but it's not considered a great league. But those clubs, you know, are major clubs that play in Europe and so on. So if you can go to Celtic, for example, Celtic and Rangers in Scotland, or you go to the the Portuguese clubs where there is pressure playing for Porto and Benfica and all that kind of stuff. In a similar way, go to Sparta Prague, go to the Czech League, where it's not considered a great league, but as a Captain of Slavia Prague, there was Suchek playing in the Champions League, best running stats in the Champions League, captain of the the, the Czech team as well. Um, a real value signing because all that was holding him back was was the league he was playing in. And Kufal's followed from 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 that league. And that's a type of that's a type of value that Moyes is able to get and and and, and his record from the championship as well. I hope they just stick with that. Uh, there is one small part of me that thinks if there are if there were fans inside the London Stadium at the start of the season, <laughs> whether it whether it would have gone as smoothly, let's call it that, for David Moyes, because I remember they were up in arms about the sale of Dean Garner to West Brom, for example, and we know they don't like going inside the London Stadium full stop. They hate watching football there. So when they return, Tom, do you think the West Ham United fans will be smiling? Yeah, because of where the team are. I do. I think. I think what the results weren't going well, and the, the stadium just didn't d- doesn't help. But I think once when results turn around, when your team's winning, um, it, that that's the thing that that gets fans on side. If it's all, you know, the, the, their big gripe, their big gripe was that um, that they were promised they were going to the London Stadium to be a bigger club. 
if they come back and when they're when Moyes t- took over, they're, they're in the relegation spaces. So if they come back and there's talk of Europe and realistic talk of Europe, then you're fulfilling expectations. There's no doubt, though, that the the atmosphere in those early weeks, because, you know, they were, there's probably still some of them that are still not fan of Moyes because they have a feeling that there's a West Ham way and there's there's a kind of an obligation to play a certain brand of football. You know, and as Tom says, at the moment, that will be dissipating a little bit because they're winning games. If, if they go on a, a, a sticky patch or sticky run of form, then, you know, those, <laughs> those grumbles will no doubt come to the fore again. But those first couple of weeks, absolutely, they would have been much harder to navigate with all the noise around Diangana and Moise's football and whatnot. But thankfully, they were able to, you know, I think all of us were really... None of us saw this coming. I certainly didn't. I didn't see. Maybe Johnny would. Johnny's a big fan of, of Moisey. I know that. But I, I thought it was look, looking like a tough season for them, but particularly because you know there was a lack of investment and where they're going to get a few signings over the line. But the, the signings they have made have, been, have improved them enormously. And also the first game of the season was, was when they were awful against Newcastle. Yeah. And again, you wonder whether fans in the stadium then, whether that would have turned. But... Without them, it's 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 helped, it's benefited. Well, hopefully they'll have a lot to smile about and David Moyes will continue his good work. Um, what a connection this is, though. Their former manager, Sam Allardyce, in charge of West Brom, of course, took over from Slavon Bilic as well. Before that defeat to West Ham United, Sam Allardyce was remarking on the fact that he left Robert Snodgrass out of his squad entirely for the match against his former team, West Ham. And he implied quite strongly that there was basically a gentleman's agreement between the two clubs when Snodgrass was signed earlier this month that he wouldn't take part in this fixture. And the Premier League are now investigating that. Um, Gregor, from your playing career, have you ever seen this happen? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you get gentlemen's agreements and loans. They don't always actually, uh, in my experience, tied, you know, write it into the contract that you don't, you, you're not allowed to play against your parents' club. Sometimes that is a gentleman's agreement, but certainly not on a permanent move. And, you know, it's just interesting the way it's come about and that if Sam hadn't said anything... Um, <laughs> you know, we'd be none the well. I don't know. Would we? There would have been questions asked, and I suppose he would have had to to kind of straight back them and say he was injured or something. But um, well, clearly, they weren't going to get the player signed um, until after they played this game. That was their that was the kind of the stumbling block. So they 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 came to a mutual agreement that you know we'll sign him now, but we won't play him in that game, and uh, so they could have him against Wolves in it. And he was he was good against Wolves, so. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I don't know. It's it, it seems like a it seems like clearly a, a rule has been broken. But it also, I'm not entirely sure it's the biggest big deal in the world either because he wouldn't have signed otherwise. There is precedent for it. It, it happened in um, and and just you saying about a rule being broken. It happened with Tim Howard and and United and Everton. He was on loan. He was on loan to from uh, to Everton from United and then signed and could have played against them. This was 2007, I think, and could have played against them and didn't because of a gentleman's agreement. Same thing happened. Premier League investigated and found no wrongdoing. So Good luck in getting somebody now to admit it. You know, we we already have. <laughs> I know, but yeah, but I'll roll back on that. And they'll need, somebody, you know, they'll need both sides to, to come forward. And so I think it'll probably be blown over in a few days. It's a, it's a funny one, though, isn't it? Selling a player because they're not good enough to play for you, but then you don't want them to play again yeah <laughs> i don't understand that i don't know if there will be ramifications for this but yeah i think after sam allardyce's record of telling people how they can and cannot get around things this probably wasn't the best thing uh, for him but, but but there you go we'll see if there are any ramifications for west bromwich albion or robert snodgrass or sam allardyce for that matter and you can read at the moment uh, gary jacobs piece on the miracle worker he says david moyes in the times right now Get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and Sunday Times and you will get yourself one month free. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get yourself started. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. 
Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Well, it's time to take a trip north now to Manchester, where United beat Fulham to go top of the Premier League just a couple of hours after City were briefly top after their 2-0 win over Aston Villa, which included a case study from the professional refereeing final exams. We'll get to that uh, in a few moments' time, but we'll start at Craven Cottage, where an incredible Paul Pogba goal won the game for United and I was there. He was an absolute joy to watch. He is technically on another level. He toys with players. His touch is perfect. He has every pass in the book. And it has always been for me about application and whether he could do that consistently. He's got the talent. We know it is just about him showing it. And and Johnny, finally, it seems like he is showing it. Do you think he's going to reach that potential that everyone has spoken about for so long in a United shirt? Goodness me, I hope he, I hope he does. Because the Paul Pogba of the last few weeks and last night I watched the game is a, just a sensational um, amalgam of, of, of power, skill, football brain, leadership, everything, everything you want in a player. This is a guy that they, 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 they hoped they'd signed. It reminded me of what he did last night. I remember when, when Pogba was coming through at United, I remember people saying, you've got to see this kid in the youth team. And watching a couple of games, you know, bits of MUTV footage, and you'd see this sort of, you know, this powerhouse midfielder who was just bigger and better than everyone else, sort of barging everyone aside in midfield. And then he'd pop up on the edge of the box and bend one in from 20 yards. And you'd go, is, is that the same player? Can, can somebody do both of those things? And that's the player we're seeing at the moment. I think, I think application is, there's a nuance to that because I think it's more inspiration. I think he needs to be inspired by the team around him and the situation he's in. To, to reach those those heights. I think he's always tried hard, but maybe that extra level of, uh, yeah, as I say, that last sort of bit of bite or, 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 or sharpness comes from ins- inspiration. Solskjaer keeps talking about how important it is to get Paul fit. Every He'd said it again last night, every post-match interview recently, he's talked about Paul being fit. And I, I also wonder whether... Uh, you know, we know he had COVID early in the season and, and, and it took him a while. But I also wonder with him, given his size and how he has to, how he, you know, the, the skills that he's got to execute them under pressure, you know, it's, it's difficult when you're that size. And I just wonder if he's one of those players, a bit like Wayne Rooney was, that needs to be, you know, he's got like a fighting weight. He's got to be absolutely on it. And even if he's a pound heavier or he's done a session less training, he's not quite going to be there because I think Solskjaer's trying to tell us something with that. But certainly in the condition he's in, mentally and physically, this is an unbelievable player. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you on that. I think after the lockdown and COVID, he, he did come back slightly out of the shape that we would expect him to be in. And yes, he's he's he is getting there. But uh, look, I, I think he's a player that can do everything and, and, and people can... can raise their question marks over those other nuanced things that you mentioned, like mentality maybe, Gregor. Um what do you think of Paul Pogba? Can he elevate this Manchester United team to being champions? That's the huge question mark. I, I, personally, I, I wouldn't be getting too carried away. I think he's had hugely decisive moments against against Fulham, um, against Burnley, Burnley. Mm-hmm. against West Ham. So yeah, he stepped up in, in those moments. He's been, but there's been other moments, parts of the game where I, you know. I, I, it still, it still. I, I know everybody enjoys to watch, but it still baffles me when he has has the ball in a in a promising area and he's got a simple pass, which is the it's the right thing to do, and he tries to hold someone off and toy with them. Like he still does those kind of things that, for you know, I know that's something that people like to watch, and it's possibly you know you could say it's kind of he's having fun on the pitch. That's great, but sometimes he'll lose the ball and he'll give it away and do that. I just I, there's still things about him that drive me mad, to be honest. And the, uh, he's had, we've seen for, patches of form like this. We've seen them in his time at Manchester United. He needs to sustain it. If he does if he plays like this for the majority of the rest of the season, there's a chance he'll help Man U win the league. And then you go, crikey, this is the player, yes. But he's, you know, he's played probably six or seven good games in a row. I wouldn't be getting too carried away yet, personally. You raise a good point. For me, there's always been a, a two types of central midfield player in a way for me. There is a, a central midfield player who every time you see them, they're in an ocean of space 
and there is a central midfield player who is combative or sort of in bodily contact with other players often, you know, in that midfield area. And I'm always more scared about the ones who are in contact with other players because I, I always feel they're more likely to lose the ball in a central midfield area. Um, I just think Paul Pogba has that ability now that if he uses it wisely, he can take Manchester United onto another plane. And I actually think he's been pushed into this position by the arrival of Bruno Fernandes because I, I think it's helped take some pressure off of him on the pitch, off the pitch in the way that the media react to why hasn't Paul Pogba performed? Why are Manchester United not winning games? I think he, Fernandes has helped take his name out of the headlines as being maybe a bit of a scapegoat for Manchester United. Um, but I also think in many ways it's relaxed him to know that there's more quality around him and that takes the onus off him to sort of run the game and that means that he can have more decisive moments. Go on, Johnny. Well, he clearly likes Plymouth Cavani too. If you look at their body language together on the pitch and that feeds into what you're saying, Hugh, I think he he enjoys playing with players who he sees as being at that level. Like, like I, 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 Gregor makes a, a very valid point about... Um, judging things too quickly because we have seen him dip in and out of form before but you know everyone comes back to what he does for France and I'd say over his, the period of his French career he's been very very consistent and I guess the pro Pogba argument would be that that is the player that he is when he's in the right environment and he feels right about where he is so he can achieve consistency if if, 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 he want, if he wants to, I suppose, which maybe he goes straight back to Gregor's point again. But this is a moment. This is a key, this is a key moment. You know, which way is Paul Pogba going to go in the next couple of months? And that will determine which way Manchester United go and probably which way Paul Pogba is remembered in the Premier League. Absolutely. I think, I think that's absolutely right. I think if he, if he kind of maintains his form, he keeps stepping up and kind of, as we say, you know, make, having these decisive moments that win the games for Manchester United, uh, looking dominant in, in spells and games, and you know enough spells and games. No one can do it for ninety minutes. Um, if he does that between now and the, the season, you know, this is the first time I've ever said this on the podcast. Man United have a chance. They do because he's one of their best players. There's no, there's never been any doubt about that. He just needs to show it regularly. So if he's shown it regularly and they have Fernandez on form and they have Cavani coming in and they have Rashford, you know, crikey, that's, you know, that's a, a stellar lineup. And for the first time you go, yes, Manchester United have a chance of staying up at the top end of the, the top of the table. But is he going to do it? He's not, he's not done it yet. That's all I'm saying. He's not done it yet. I think it's belief. I completely agree with with Johnny the, the idea of being inspired. I think it's it's belief, um, especially when Cavani's playing. Um, uh, I think you see he brings a really nice balance to the team. He's this tip, this sort of traditional number nine, and and I think he's an, he, he probably reminds him a little bit of Ibrahimovic as well in the way in which. He plays the aura he has, um, yeah, the way he plays as a striker, and he, he just instead of there's always there's always been that that kind of hope at, at United will Rashford become their, this thirty goal a season striker leading the line? Is Greenwood going to come through and be the Robin Van Persie? And the the irony was when Cavani came in, it seemed like another one of those panic buys from United, a, a goal scorer who they hoped was coming to the end of his career and they hoped they'd bring in. But instead, he's actually been that kind of stellar signing, this this top start signing, this real goal scorer. And I think in Pogba, he, he believes that they can do it now. That's quite clear. Tom, do you think he leaves this summer no matter what? I was thinking that as well. <laughs> I was. No, I don't. I don't because because I think they'll. I think whatever happens, I think I think they will end the season well. Even it, it will it will still be a good season for United. I think I don't. I think they'll get the top four, and I think it will still be a good season for United. And he'll see that they, they they seem to be growing and growing and growing. It just seems it seems incredible that. You know what was it? it? It feels like only last week that Mina Raiola was was saying he's gone, he's on his way, and 
and it, it, it seems that that was the spark point to this form. I mean, he'll be 28 in March. I think there's a strong chance he'll leave in the summer, regardless. His contract league, ends next summer as well, of course. Yeah. They, they, 2022. Yes. So, you know, there would be the kind of moment in time where if he, if there's any noises again and there's any push from his agent, and he doesn't, the agent doesn't do it without his knowledge. It's nonsense even having that discussion. If, if he, there's any push again, then that's the moment in time where Man United could get some money back. And he, if he's helped them win the Premier League title, they might be even more willing to do it. If he hasn't, then... You know, I, I think either way, I think either way, there's a good chance still that he's going to go. He, he could, if he can still go, if he can go, go and play Real Madrid, you know, if he's, this is the time. If he signs another contract, it won't happen. It's very unlikely to happen. So this is the time. This is his time if he wants another big move and he wants to, to be a kind of galactical. Well, there's not a lot of money in European football at the moment, though. Um, Real Madrid looks a natural place, has always looked a natural place with the Zidane link as well. But he's just, he's going to be very, very expensive. I mean, you come back to PSG as the most likely destination and, and it'd be interesting to see him go into Pochettino's team and suddenly be asked to play a 90-minute pressing game or something like that. But yeah, he's his agent and him have clearly worked a position where he's got options this summer, put it that way. Um, and like we've been saying, I just think it depends on the next couple of months. If he's, if he's happy, he'll stay. We shall see what happens with the future of Paul Pogba and whether Manchester United can sustain their title challenge. One team that does look like they are going to sustain it, a Manchester City. They've now won six games in a row in the Premier League. And it was a fantastic game at the Etihad, especially for Villa's players after nearly three weeks off. But they were beaten, finished Manchester City to Aston Villa nil. Gregor, what did you make of the game? I loved it. I thought it was like a proper throwback, you know, 90s. The pitch was descending into a mud bath. It was like blood and thunder, stretched wide open. To, you know, although it was almost like the second half, it was like an FA Cup semi-final where Villa were like 2-1, 2-1 in the lead and City were throwing everything at it to get the equaliser. That's what it felt like. It was brilliant. I think only, I think in uh, Paul Hurst reported, he said only the the game, that crazy game at Man United and Leeds had had more shots of any game in the Premier League this season. So, cracking game. And, you know, obviously Villa can feel very hard done by. We'll come to discuss that, I'm sure. But City, City, City were kind of, I don't know, they were, they were still creating, creating chance after chance and they, they were, they were back, still back to their old selves. Again, they're still playing very well, but they're still lacking that kind of, that killer touch a little bit. And, you know, we've spoken about this many times about who's playing centre forward for them and the absence of Aguero. Uh, so that's still that's still an underlying kind of little worry, I think, for them. Um, but Villa, you know, on the break, the brilliant chances. Troy's where he kind of plucked the ball out of the air from the goalkeeper's kick and cut inside and shot. That was one. Grealish was a threat on the break. Watkins chases everything in the channel and non-stop for 90 minutes. Um you know, I thought I thought Villa could feel very hard done by. So, shall we talk about that crazy decision now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, all right. Well, <laughs> what do you think about it, Gregor? <laughs> well, I think. <laughs> I mean, what the hell is going on? Is I just there's, there's a lot of rules really in football that aren't really fit for purpose, aren't there? You know, we talk about handball. I've talked about offside before on this. I remember it made me think back to City's Champions League semi final against. Was it Leon? And the goal where the, the it was played, somebody dummied it through the legs, and you know there was a there was a it's, again it's about who's interfering. Any, I said I'm a defender, I'm biased, so or I was a defender. Anyone, anyone that's within your kind of peripheral vision influences your decision. It's hard. You, you expect someone, although this is an extreme example because he was 15 yards behind him and Mings saw the ball being kicked. It's very hard to ask a defender, particularly in a penalty box, when often these these decisions are being made, to discount someone because you know because they're over that side, they're out of the, they're not classes interfering. It's very hard to ask a defender to do that, and I, you know personally, I think anyone who's offside should be offside. And I think this is an extreme example of it, and obviously we know that the rule was explained afterwards, and you heard Robbie Savage on the TV sort of suggesting that he, you know, acted as if he knew that rule, which was ludicrous. I mean, no one did. Pep Guardiola said afterwards, I don't know this rule. Like, Tyrone no really... said the same. Exactly. You know, <laughs> so I think, I think 
oh, clearly by the letter of the law, it, it's it, the goal should have been given and it was given. But again, this is one of many laws that are not fit for purpose in football and that would be illuminated in the last 12 months, probably with the help of R. It just seems to be increasingly happening where you have a something something like this, which is outrageously wrong and and if that stadium had been full everyone would would have thought that that isn't right and it reminded me a little bit of it used to happen quite often I think Thierry Henry did it once where a goalkeeper would be bouncing the ball or go to kick the ball and they nick it from them and put it in the goal it reminded me of something like that where it's 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 not quite right um at the same time I did think there, Tyro Mings and Villa were still in a situation where they could have defended that. There, that wasn't a straightaway one-on-one keeper goal. They they could still have defended that. Yeah, he should have cleared it. I mean, these are these are obvious things. He should have. He could have defended better afterwards. He should have cleared it in the first place. Although it's easy to say in hindsight, but he he chested the ball, took one touch, and he was he was on him. It's not like he chested the ball, took a touch took a touch, looked up, and then he was it was pinched off his off his toes. It was like chest control tackle. He had no chance. Yeah, look, this is one of the things that I think for me makes the rule ridiculous in that had he challenged Mings for the ball coming out of the air, he would have been offside. Yeah, but so. because Mings tried to chest it down and then he challenged for the ball, he wasn't offside. I also think that the, the decision-making for the defender was left at two extremes because everyone is saying... Tyrone Mings should have cleared it. But if Tyrone Mings ducked underneath it, Rodri would have been offside. If he just let the ball run run straight past him and did nothing with it, it also would have been offside because that would have been the ball uninterrupted carrying on. It wouldn't have been seen even as a minor secondary phase of play. But it is another example of people forgetting what the beauty of football is and what the spirit of football is, which is that I think we have a sport that was that became so dramatic and so brilliant to watch and got the whole world interested and loving it because it's imperfect because the rules were imperfect because there was that sort of freedom for the referees to interpret it that that gave us the drama the arguments the debates the opinions and the more they attempt to make football perfect on the pitch in terms of the rules, the more ridiculous it becomes because the sport, it, it's just not, you know, the beauty of it is it's imperfection. And I, would argue, I would argue this is them, I don't know, this is them trying to kind of over, uh, what's the word? Officiate. Like, yeah, yeah, like if offside's clear and simple and it's a line and anyone over that line, they've already tried to make it too complicated. You know, you could go back to making it very simple. And, you know, part of me saying, thinking this, thinking, you know, if somebody's standing out on the touchline and, and the goal scored on the other side, should it be a goal? You know, they're, they're extreme examples like that. But there are also examples where a striker will run offside and he'll that will influence the defender's position. And then you will hold his hands up or whatever or start walking back. And then he can be classed as offside, but he's already influenced uh, sorry, it's, it's not interfering in play, but he's already influenced the defender. It's there's too there's too much at play for the defenders there. I'm, I think it's, a, it's similar to the the one with the goalkeeper's vision as well. Where you know, if I was about to say that, I was exactly I was about to say that it happened against West Brom this week for West Ham United. Fabianski goes to dive in the bottom corner. Colin Gallagher is in front of him. He isn't in his direct line of vision when the shot's made, but because the ball goes across Gallagher. Fabianski doesn't commit fully to the dive into the bottom corner because Gallagher could have flicked it into the goal and that way he can't get his fingertips to it and that goal was still given and for me that's offside because it has influenced the decision making of the goalkeeper who could have just thrown himself into the bottom corner and maybe got a save instead he hesitated sometimes the striker even kind of makes half a move towards it and you know that as if that's not influencing the goalkeeper he doesn't even know if he's going to touch it or not it's madness we, we, we haven't even talked about the fact that, that play doesn't get called back anymore, that they let a move develop. And then the fact that somebody's been in an offside position means that move as an extra impetus. Um, and, and in a new phase of play, they win a corner or whatever. I mean, without getting a bit too arse and thinking about this, I, I actually wonder if it's time to scrap offside 
as a, as a rule. I think it was invented. Gregor's going to hate that as a defender, but it was, it was invented in the 1920s in its current form to stop goal hanging. We're, we're a totally different game now. Levels of fitness. There's no chance players could goal hang because it has to be an 11 man game in and out of possession. I, d- I don't know. It's, it's radical, and uh, I, I'd like to see it trialed before making a decision on it. But it's, it's nonsense, Johnny. <laughs> it's absolute nonsense. I will not countenance the idea that, that, <laughs> that offside is taken out of the sport because because it's then a totally different game. I is mean, you, you'll have 11 players defending the goal line. Yeah, it's a totally different sport without offside because you... Uh, look, Gregor, you were a defender. If anyone can can stand there five yards behind you, say, for example, it's a, if a, a free kick into the box, let's call it that, right? In this example, where do you set your defensive line then? You know, a ball out wide getting crossed into the box. Yeah, I mean, you don't leave much room for the goalkeeper to come and claim because this, yeah, if anyone can run in behind you, you drop deep. <laughs> you know, there's been analysis of this actually in Manchester United in the past weekend. Uh, you know, you needing to nick those extra few yards to compress the play and stuff. That's part of the, that's part of the kind of the beauty of defending, I think. It's like, you know, that's bravery. That's, that's bravery stepping up and still, because everyone knows the defenders hate a ball over in behind them into space more than anything. So if if they can't be offside when that happens, you don't allow the space. I almost think managers will go 11 against 11 all over the pitch like it's five a side and just say, track your man. Yeah. That's the best way to defend. The elder you know, ones like, what, do you, what do you mean, yeah? <laughs> No, 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 no. That's ridiculous, Johnny. Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is nonsense, but I think we're getting to the point where with something something has to be tried. I, I can't see def- I, I can't see with a no offside game, um, eleven men st- standing in front of a of a goal because f- football's about space and possession and territory these days. And you'd be you'd just be giving the opposition the ball all the time, um, and you'd be consigning yourself to having no chance of. Of counterattacking, so I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't. I think levels of fitness, I think levels of strategy, positioning are, are such that we, we wouldn't see those types of games. But look, maybe I'm wrong. I'd have to see it in the flesh. I'd have to. I'd have to see it trialed. I, I, or, or, or we go back to what Gregor says of just offsides, offside. In the we're in some kind of rugby territory at the moment where it's just administrated every week. I also think that what a footballer is might change if offside didn't exist, where everyone would need to be, you know, it'd be total football. Yeah. Everyone needs to be both centre-back and central for, centre-forward and central midfielder and winger. And, you know, it's just, uh, look, the game would materially change. And thankfully, we're not there just yet. But all I would say on the final point and what happened to Tyrone Mings against Manchester City is, if the referee gave offside there, would anyone, either manager or any of the players, complained? And that, for me, is really where you think it must be a ridiculous rule if 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 our perception of what offside is can be so against the rule as it was and, and how it played out for Tyrone Mings and Aston Villa. Because I, I don't think anyone that watches football would have complained if the flag went up there. And we wouldn't we wouldn't have we wouldn't have noticed it, would we? By the way, the penalty was just as bad. I would agree yeah. with that. I would agree with Terrible. that. Again, you're talking about the rule, though. We're talking about the rules yeah. and about being above the hand being above the shoulder. That's again, it's a kind of you're drawing lines where it's never that simple. It's never that straightforward. And you've got to talk about the distance, and you've got to talk about the area of the pitch. And yeah, I mean, it'd be tough being a defender these days. It would be. It would be. The money would be all right, though, Gregor. So you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> got to take that. Got to take that as it comes. Um, look, there's another big bit of news this week that we've got to discuss. Phil Neville has left his role as England's women's manager. His contract was due to end in July. He's taken over at David Beckham's Inter Miami in the MLS, having won the She Believes Cup title in 2019 with England and finished fourth at the World Cup that same year. But he did lose seven of his last 11 games in charge. Norwegian Hegerisa will be the interim boss until Serena Wiegmann takes permanent charge in September. But Neville leaves with a win percentage of 54%. Compare that with 64% of his predecessor, Mark Sampson. I've got to ask, and I'll start with you, Johnny. Do you think Neville was a success as England boss? I think... There were two rate, two parts to his reign, weren't there? I think the, the 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 initial spell was a was a great success, and he he I suppose he made a bit of a culture change, and he brought in um a, 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 a more a mentality more of expectation and excellence and so on. 
Um, the irony is he wasn't able to then develop it and, and, and see it through on the pitch. And if you took my legacy um, and looking at it the whole, I think the way it's ended is, is actually bad for the women's game. The fact that you'd leave a, a prized position like that to to go to um, a, a struggling MLS club. I know it's owned by his friend and it's got potential, but in terms of the, everything Neville preached when he came in was about the status and how the women's game should expect the same levels as a men's game. You know, this is a great job. Playing for England's incredible. He hasn't lived that though, has he? He's walked away to uh, to go and manage into Miami. So there's a mixed message there. Um, I think some players will remember him with fondness and, and he developed them. Like Lucy Bronze, you know, helped with her career. Maybe some, some want. Um, it, it doesn't doesn't quite sit right the departure all in all. I think Johnny's totally right um, that the, he sort of lifted excellence um, levels in, t- in terms of what the England women's team should expect and what they they um, kind of have and the way they're treated by the FA to be on the same level of the men's and and that is kind of a big part of his legacy which is a little bit kind of damning on on what actually happened on the pitch to have that as as your legacy um and i was a little i was surprised by the 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 job he took because i thought it was a a step the ambitions you assume are going to be the premier league so then why go to the mls it seemed a strange what premier league club will look at the way in which a manager in the mls develops a team and think they can do that here. I don't know. I think at times towards the end, Neville showed a little bit of disrespect to the women's game. He, he came out openly and sort of suggested it was always this job, you know, coaching England, by the way, was always going to be a stepping stone to a job in the men's game. That's pretty much why I took it. Um, and I, I didn't think he was even going to get a championship job personally by by doing that. You know, I, I assumed if he was going to go into coaching in the men's game, it would be in League One or League Two, frankly. Um, the fact that he's got a job in the MLS is fantastic for him. You know, I hope he enjoys Miami. Um, but I do think at times, even though he made those statements about women's football being level with the men and, and should be treated similarly, towards the end when it wasn't going badly and questions were being asked of him, you know, that veneer sort of broke in my opinion. I've been to a couple of MLS clubs. I went to visit Wayne Rooney in, in, in DC a couple of years ago and the the, the low level of, of, of facilities has got to be seen to be believed um, you know the, 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 the I don't think that'll be the case into Miami though I believe they've got a massive new complex and it's kind of David Beckham has gone full out on this so um, but you're right it's a, it's a level where you kind of as as you said even you know you may be looking at a job you'd be doing well to get a championship job so if you're going to get offered a league one or league two job or you can go to into miami with this kind of prestige and all that that's the level he's at that's that's the kind of realm he's operating in i mean i don't think he's particularly impressive in in terms of as a pundit as what he's done as a coach but he's had jobs for england under 21s as manchester united assistant a valencia assistant uh he co-owned Salford. <laughs> uh, he didn't even apply for the England women's job and now he's got into Miami. So meritocracy it is not. But it is but it's also, you know, he also then you heard Gary Neville and Sky Sports sort of defending him and saying that he every waking moment is a focused on fo- on coaching and football and becoming better at it. And you know, I tr- I fully believe that. So and that is that is he is Phil Neville. He is one of the the kind of class of 92, whatever it was. Is it 92? <laughs> so that's the way, you know, it's not his fault. It's not his fault. And I'm sure he does work hard. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure he'll work hard in this job and he'll try and make the best of it. I suppose the positive is for, for, for the women's team is that they're getting an outstanding coach in Serena Weigman coming. Um, it now opens the way for someone like an Emma Hayes or Shelley Kerr or whatever to take the Olympic team. You know they've got Hegarisa coming in, who's who's got a great reputation. So they actually might, you know, maybe they needed this change anyway. Um, for the, for the players and for the team, it might be a benefit. I think the damage is just to the the prestige. I think you know, as you were saying here, and Tom, he's just sort of undermined his own argument. 
the argument that with the women's game is as, as, as prestigious as the men. He's, 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 he's undermined that with this decision. We were talking about how uh, Frank Lampard and the, the uh, credit in the bank that he kind of has and the relationship that he has with Abramovich. Be interested to see if it doesn't go well for Phil Neville, David Beckham, having that conversation at the end. Listen, maybe there's a, a BBC documentary on the way. It wouldn't surprise me the links that Phil Neville has. Um, uh, it felt like a bit of an experiment, though, for the women's game, Phil Neville's appointment. You know, lots of people made out when it happened that it that it would raise the profile of the women's game. And it almost felt like a lot of the decision-making was around the focus and engagement that there might be in the women's team because someone like Phil Neville was involved. Um to hire someone who hadn't worked in the women's game before then as the England women's manager was a huge decision. Do you think that has worked out for the FA, Johnny? Probably not, actually. Um, it, 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 it's, I think he, I think they needed more commitment and success from him for it to, for it to truly work out. And I, I, I think I mentioned the appointments, Begman for, for in particular, they seem to have learned from that. They're looking now at who's achieved excellence in the women's game and going down that route for England manager. And I think that's entirely correct. So, you know, maybe this will be a a, a, a short um, look back on as a short period, a little experiment that that, that didn't work. Um, because I don't, I'm not, I can't see them doing this again. Gregor, what do you think? Um, I personally thought defensively, he never really got a hold of his England team. And they were a side that was third in a World Cup and then finished fourth in a World Cup. And a lot of people said that meant that, that there was no real progress under Phil Neville. And I, I'm concerned about him even being a success as into Miami's boss because they have had a torrid first season in the MLS for them. And to have Phil Neville, who again, for me, has work to do. Um, you know, if I supported that that club and actually I would have put myself as an Inter Miami fan given the amount of time I've spent in the city. And I was, I, I, I'll tell you, honestly, I've, uh, my cousin lived there. I used to visit pretty much every other year. You know, I was looking forward to this franchise for years and then they called it Inter Miami and my heart sank because and I was just like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I hope he does well, but I'm still concerned that, that again, he's got work to do and, uh, well, what do you think? Do you think he will be a success in the MLS because it's a particular footballing community? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things to go into that. He's got kind of a reputation to 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 build, and as I say, every every move, it's he's it's, had a strange career in, after football. Every every job he's had, as you know, first of all, alongside David Moyes, his old manager, then alongside Valencia, Valencia alongside his brother. Um, as I say, the England thing was an experiment. This is this is because you know, alongside uh, David Beckham, his friend. So he has to make it a success. I don't know where he would go after this. Where, where, where would he go? Certainly in in England, where would he go if this wasn't a success? I really don't know. Um, so he has to make it a success, and I'm sure he's you know, I'm sure he's he's a capable coach, and uh, over in America perhaps even more so than over here, is kind of what he's achieved in the game will 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 make him a bit of a will give him some stature. So, you know, I don't know, a lot of it's it's hard to say. I think he also clearly he's going to need investment and I think Inter Miami will have investment and it'd probably be a quite a long term project. So, you know, probably a, a thing where you ask in a couple of years and you look back and see see how the club has developed under him. Tom, can it can he be a, a top manager in the future? Can he improve and improve? kind of wanted the, the actually the opposite of, of Gregor in a way the, the fact that his kind of background and having having managed um, the kind of women's team for, for for a few years to what what would the inter Miami players um, think of his career coming over and the success he's had you know, would they feel inspired to think this is the guy who's going to sort us out? I think he's got a lot of work in these next 
few days and weeks to 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 really set a foundation for where it's going to go. Well, we'll see if Phil Neville can make a, a success of himself in the MLS. Of course, as an English manager, we wish him the best. And if he's not one day a future English manager, I'm sure he's a future Salford City manager, Gregor, to answer your question on where, where he might go next. Uh, but gentlemen, thank you for being with me for the past hour or so. Jonathan Northcroft, Tom Roddy and Gregor Robertson. Uh, much to look forward to over the weekend. It's the fourth round of the FA Cup. Fingers crossed for a better a game between Manchester United and Liverpool. We'll discuss that on Monday amongst a raft of other things, I'm sure. But remember to get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times and get more of our award-winning journalism on all of your devices. Sign up today and get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, rapper and songwriter Professor Green talks candidly about being raised on an East London council estate by his grandmother, his drug dealing, and how his father's suicide made him re-evaluate his own life. The one thing that I have in common with a lot of my, my friends who come from similarly disadvantaged backgrounds is that we all carry on and at the end of the day no matter what happens if you're still alive I don't think there's anything really left to do but carry on Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson Professor Green in his own words now available as a podcast listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen VoiceOver on settings so you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.